Welcome everyone to JG Ministries. I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain of JG Ministries, and I'm so glad you're listening today. This is our Bible study portion of our ministry where we study God's Word. And in our study, we're unpacking the book of Mark. And today we'll begin chapter 6 by taking a look at Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. So turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 6, verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark, and let's get into it. Now verse 1 begins, Then he, who is Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages <clears throat> in a circuit teaching. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now let's take a look at verse 1 here. So Jesus now travels and returns to his hometown. Of Nazareth with his disciples. Nazareth is where he grew up. Not where he was born, but where he grew up. Now, even though he was born in Bethlehem, his family lived in Nazareth. He'd been brought up there. This was his own country where he had worked as a carpenter. His father Joseph was a carpenter. And it is a tradition that the children would do the same labor as their father. And Jesus came here, a rabbi who was accompanied by his disciples. Now on the Sabbath, as we take a look at verse 2, Jesus went into the synagogue and began teaching. This probably was the first time his fellow townsmen had actually heard Jesus teach. And many of them were amazed. The people were astonished. They could not deny the wisdom of Jesus' teaching, nor could they deny the wonder of his miracles. But there was a deep unwillingness to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. They thought of Jesus as just a carpenter. He was just the Son of Mary. His brothers and sisters were still there in Nazareth. But some of them, or with some of them, there was an undercurrent of doubt as they wondered about the source of his teaching and his miracles. They were either from God or they were from Satan. Which one was it? So verse 3 shows the hostility of Jesus' townspeople towards him. It came out more clearly in the radical questions that we see in verse 3. 
And in essence, they were asking this, isn't he just a common, ordinary fellow who makes his living with his hands like the rest of us? How is it that he is uh, prating as a rabbi and a miracle worker? The question, isn't this Mary's son? It seems also to be derogatory since it was not customary among the Jews to describe a man as the son of his mother. So behind this question may be the rumor that circulated during Jesus's lifetime that maybe he was illegitimate. The brothers and the sisters of Jesus mentioned here, now these were probably the children that was born to Mary and Joseph. And James was likely the oldest outside of Jesus and was certainly the best known of Jesus's brothers. He was closely identified with the church in Jerusalem, and he was probably the author of the epistle of James. So Jude was probably the author of the book of Jude. Now we know nothing of Joseph and Simon. The townspeople of Nazareth were offended at Jesus. They refused to believe in Jesus or his word. Had he returned to Nazareth as a mighty conquering hero, they might have accepted Jesus more readily. But Jesus came in a lowly grace. He came in humility, and this offended them. Now, in verses 4 and 6, we see Jesus responding to the doubts that are raised about the legitimacy of his teaching and his miracles by a proverb that has parallels in both Jewish and Greek literature. The people in Nazareth were incapable of appreciating who Jesus was because, like Jesus' own family, they identified him so closely with themselves. And it was then that Jesus observed that a prophet is generally given a better reception away from his home. His relatives and friends, they're too close to him to appreciate his person, to appreciate his ministry. There's no place harder to serve the Lord than at home. And the Nazarenes themselves were a despised people. They were not popular at all. A popular attitude was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet these social outcasts, they looked down on the Lord Jesus. Okay? What a commentary on the pride and unbelief of the human heart. Unbelief largely hindered the work of the Savior in Nazareth. He healed a few sick people, but that was all. The unbelief of the people amazed Jesus. Such unbelief as this has immense consequences for evil. It closes the channels of grace and mercy so that only a trickle gets through to human lives in need. And verse 5 is a bold statement in that it refers to something Jesus could not do. He did, of course, have the power to do miracles in Nazareth. His ability was related to the moral situation. In the climate of unbelief, 
he chose not to exercise his miraculous power. One of the great emphasis of Mark's gospel is that Jesus performs his miracles in response to faith. And Jesus expressed amazement at their lack of faith. Apparently, he did not expect such a response from his own townspeople. And again, Jesus tasted the loneliness of being misunderstood and being slighted. Many of his followers have shared this type of sorrow. Often the servants of the Lord appear in a very, very humble guise. Are we able to look beyond outward appearances and able to recognize true spiritual worth? Undaunted by his rejection in Nazareth, Jesus went about the surrounding villages teaching the word. And as a result of the village ministry, Jesus decided to send out 12, presumably to increase his own ministry through them. So let's take a look at that. The servant sends forth his disciples. Let's take a look at verses 7 to 13 here. And follow along with me as I read. And he, Jesus, called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, there's quite a bit to unpack here. So let's take a look at verse 7 here. So the time had come for the twelve to launch out. They had been under the matchless tutelage of the Savior. They had been under Jesus' training, if you will. And now they're going to go forth as heralds, with a glorious message. Jesus had already been preparing his disciples for this mission. He'd already been training them. They had The disciples had been living with him. Jesus had been talking to them, teaching them. And Jesus had called them with his promise. I will make you fishers of men. Most of these disciples were fishermen. That was their business. They went and fished for fish to sell for people to eat now they were going to fish for men he had withdrawn on several occasions to give the disciples special attention and the disciples had witnessed jesus's mighty acts and they listened to his wise words and now it was time for them to be sent out our first evangelists the word used here for sending carries with it the idea of official representation. Their message and their deeds were to be an extension of Jesus' own. So Jesus sent them out two by two. 
the preaching would thus be confirmed in the mouths of two witnesses. In the Old Testament, you always had to have two witnesses. And also, there would be a strength and a mutual help in traveling together. They could strengthen each other. They could support each other. You know, there was two of them if wild animals came. And he sent them out two by two. And this was apparently a Jewish custom, so that the, like I said, the truthfulness of their testimony about Jesus might be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the twelve were given power over evil spirits. And Mark especially highlights Jesus' power to exercise demons. And the presence of two might be also helpful in cultures where moral conditions were low. He gave them power over these unclean spirits. And this is worth noting. It's one thing to cast out demons, but only God can confer this power on others. And if our Lord's kingdom were of this world, as we take a look at verses 8 and 9, Jesus would have never have given the instructions which follow in the verses actually of 8 to 11. They are the very opposite of what the average worldly leader would give. The disciples were to go forth without provisions. They weren't to take a bag, no bread, no copper in their money belt, so they weren't to take any money. They were to trust Jesus to supply for every one of their needs. Inherent in the commission of the twelve was absolute trust in God to supply everything they needed, all their needs, and this included their physical needs. They were to take only what they had on their backs. The only exception was a staff. No food, no money, and clothing was a minimum. Sandals were allowed, but only one tunic. Jesus said, do not take another tunic. And Jesus probably made this last prohibition because he wanted the disciples to trust God for the provision of hospitality for each night. Because an extra tunic would have been taken so they could use that as at night like a blanket to cover themselves up in the open, cool air during the night. So they were allowed to take sandals and a staff and the staff was maybe probably for protection against animals, maybe to help them along the rocky journey, and one tunic. So certainly no one would envy the disciples' possessions, nor be attracted to Christianity by the prospect of becoming wealthy. And whatever power the disciples would have, it had to come from God. It must come from God. They were totally cast upon God. They were sent out in this most frugal circumstances, yet they were representatives of the Son of God invested with his power. And Jesus undoubtedly expected them to preach the same message as he did. He also calls us to self-dedication to him and to his message. And Jesus wanted to protect the good reputation of the disciples. In verse 10, we see that whenever they accepted the hospitality of a home, they were to stay there until they left that town. Even if more comfortable or attractive lodgings were offered them, they were to accept hospitality 
wherever it was offered them, and they were to stay there till they left the area. This instruction prevented their shopping around for more comfortable lodgings. Their mission was to preach the gospel of the one who did not please himself, who was not self-seeking. They were not to compromise the message by seeking luxury, comfort, or ease. And also, this gave the disciples, whatever home they were in, and most of the time the people that accepted them were very open to the gospel message, this was a way for them to also pass along the training that they received from Jesus to other people. So when they left the area, these people who had been given the word could also tell their friends and family about the word of God. So there was a number of reasons, I believe, why this was done. And Jesus also knew that the mission of the 12 would not always be accepted, just as it is in today's times. So Jesus instructed them how to act in such circumstances. As we take a look at verse 11, by shaking dust off their feet. Now this was a Jewish custom as one would enter Jewish territory. So by, by shaking the dust off their feet, they would declare the place to be heathen, and they would make it clear by shaking their feet that those who rejected the message must now answer for themselves. The disciples' message, like that of Jesus, brings judgment as well as salvation. This always happens when the gospel is preached. If the place rejected the disciples and their message, they were not obligated to remain there. To do so would be casting pearls before swine. So in leaving, the disciples were to shake off the dust under their feet to symbolize God's rejection of those who reject his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And although some of the instructions were of a temporary nature, and they were later withdrawn by the Lord Jesus, as we see in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 35 to 36, yet they embodied the lasting principles for the servant of Christ in every age. Now, Mark describes the actual mission of the twelve verses 12 to 13. It, it was clearly patterned after Jesus' own ministry. The first thing that we need to note is that it was a preaching of repentance. The second thing to take a look at, it, driving out demons. And third and lastly, healing the sick. Now, by these activities, they were demonstrating that the kingdom of God had come with power. At this point, their mission is a mere extension of the ministry of Jesus. Their independent mission did not occur until after Jesus' resurrection. This was kind of on-the-job learning, if you will. So the disciples went out, they preached repentance, they cast out demons, and they anointed many with oil who were sick, and they healed them. Now, the anointing with oil, we believe, was a symbolic gesture, picturing soothe, alleviating power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go ahead and continue here 
with verses 14 to 29. This is the fourth section of Mark's Gospel, and we find Jesus withdrawing from the territory of Galilee for the primary purpose of further instructing his disciples. Jesus was always teaching his disciples. Though one incident of public teaching occurs in, in section chapter 7, the first 23 verses, but the focus of his teaching was now on the 12. So let's quickly take a look at that here. Now verse 14 is going to begin, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, It is Elijah. And others said, It is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him, and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was just and a holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. So we have Herod, who's mentioned here, as, and he's also mentioned as Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great, Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Now, Mark may be using the title of king here ironically or as a reflection of the local customs at that time. The this of verse 14 likely refers to the mighty works of Jesus. It's multiplied by the works of his disciples, especially since the entire discussion focuses on the question of Jesus's identity. Now, what follows are popular views of who Jesus was. That some thought Jesus to be John the Baptist, who was raised from the dead. And this shows that they knew nothing of Jesus prior to his ministry in Galilee. John the Baptist did not perform miracles while he was alive. But apparently, his resurrection status was thought to give him that power. 
There was another popular view that Jesus was identified with Elijah. Now, John the Baptist had spoken of Jesus as the coming one. To anyone who knew the Old Testament, it could be no one else but Elijah. There was a third view, that he was a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. This seems to be a lower estimate of Jesus than the other previously mentioned ones. But when news reached King Herod in verse 16 that a miracle worker was traveling through the land, he immediately concluded that it was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Because others said it was Elijah or one of the other prophets. But Herod was convinced that the man whom he had beheaded had risen. John the Baptist had been a vice from God. Harold, or, uh, Harold had silenced that voice. Now the terrible pangs of conscience were stabbing Herod for what he had done. He would learn that the way of the transgressor is hard. So Herod's view is that Jesus was John the Baptist, raised from the dead, arose not so much from what he had heard about Jesus as from the proddings of his own guilty conscience since Herod had been directly responsible for John's death. The mention of the death of John caused Mark to interrupt the account of the mission of the Twelve in order to tell this story of John's murder. So verses 17 to 20, we have the death of John the Baptist, the narrative, which switched back to the time of John's execution. Mark's Gospel has two passion narratives. We have the passion of John right here, and we also have the passion of the Messiah. And Mark devotes 14 verses to the death of John, but only five to his ministry. So the baptizer, John the Baptist, had reproved, he had, he had uh, reproved Herod for entering into an unlawful marriage with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Herodias was, was Philip's, wife's, uh, Philip's wife. Now Herodias is now Herod's wife. And she became furious and vowed to take revenge. But Herod respected John as a holy man, and he thwarted off her efforts. But John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod. Herod put him in prison because John the Baptist denounced Herod's adulterous union with Herodias. And this was his brother Philip's wife, his own niece. And in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16, the Mosaic law prohibits marriage to one's brother's wife while the brother is still alive. So, Joseph's, who is a Jewish historian that was back in the first century, he emphasized the political motives behind the action of Herod against John. In order to marry Herodias, Herod had to rid himself of the daughter of King Eratos IV, whose kingdom lay just to the east of Perea. Now, the situation there was already sensitive, and John's preaching had the potential to cause some real trouble. 
Now, Mark, on the other hand, emphasized the moral considerations. John did not hesitate to incur the wrath of Herod in his service to God. Herodias was infuriated by John. She wanted to kill him, but she couldn't do it herself. She was thwarted in her design because Herod protected John, who was motivated by fear and recognition of John's righteous and holy character. So finally, in verses 21 and 23, her chance came. Herodias finally got the opportunity that she had been waiting for. We have a banquet for Herod's birthday. This was attended by military leaders, political leaders, and even local celebrities. And Herodian's daughter went before the guests to dance. Now Herodias' arrangement for her daughter to dance was likely because Herodias sent her into the banquet hall as part of her scheme to get rid of John the Baptist. And this dance was probably a lewd one. Herod and his dinner guests were pleased with her performance so much that Herod offered her virtually anything she wanted as a reward. In fact, this pleased Herod to promise her to give up to half of his kingdom. And so we see in verse 24 and 25, the girl, she leaves the banquet hall to seek the advice of her mother Herodias. And being prompted by her mother, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herodias's quick reply betrayed the premeditated nature of her homicidal plan. Now, Mark does not mention any surprise on the daughter's part when her mother made this request. In fact, when she went to convey the request for the head of John the Baptist, the daughter added two things. She wanted John's head right now, and she wanted it on a platter. So the king is trapped. Verse 26 to 28. Against his own desires and against his own better judgment, he grants this request. Sin had woven its web around him. And the king was victimized by an evil woman and by a sensual dance. Herod was in a quandary. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he could hardly refuse the girl. He couldn't go back on his word. So reluctantly, he ordered an executioner to be sent to the prison to decapitate John. And John's head was brought to Herod, who presented it to Salome, who gave it to her mother. Now Mark ends the shocking story with John's disciples coming for the body so that they can give it a proper burial. Herod, no doubt, thought that he was now finished with this righteous prophet, John the Baptist. But this was not to be. The ministry of Jesus stirred up Herod's memories of John, and Herod's fears returned to him. When John's faithful disciples heard what had happened, they claimed John's corpse, they buried it, and then they went and they told Jesus. And with that, we will stop for today. Next time, we'll pick up right here with verse 30, where we have the feeding of the 5,000. Very entertaining. So be sure to come back next time. Until then, God bless you. And keep living Christian strong.